Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. In our community group in the past few weeks, we've just started a series where we've been sharing our testimonies with each other. Um, and we, we tell each other what's happened in our lives. We tell each other how we came to faith in Jesus um, and what's happened since. And that's good things and bad things as well. And it's been really interesting to hear people's stories. And the aim of this has been to, to be vulnerable with each other, uh, create an atmosphere where we can be known and know each other. And through this, encourage each other because each of us has great experiences of God moving in our lives. Every single one of us has testimonies and stories of what God has done and his faithfulness to us. And as this was kind of partly my idea, I had to go first. Um, and having kind of reflected on my story and then shared it with the group, it reminded me that ultimately my story so far, and ultimately all of our stories, are stories of God's faithfulness and goodness to us, even through hardship, even through difficult times. And as we continue this morning in our series looking at the life of Joseph, we come to a point in his life where, where his life, where he was enjoying hardship too. And if you've been following the story for the past few weeks, um, you'll know that Joseph's life has been actually bookmarked by hardship and suffering. His own brothers hated him so much that they sold him into slavery and faked his death. And then last week we saw how Potiphar's wife um, falsely accused him of trying to come on to her, trying to force himself on her. Um, and he's now in prison because of that abuse of power and those lies that were told about him. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. We're in Genesis 40. It will come up on the screen um, as well. I'm going to read it out if you want to read along in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. 
Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favourable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the head, he lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, so that once again he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But, the, but he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. So here's Joseph. He's in prison um, for a crime he hasn't committed. We don't know exactly how long he's been there for, but it's been a number of years. That's the implication. And he's going to be there a bit longer because he doesn't get out at the end of this either, despite um, interpreting the cupbearer's dream. There's no doubt this is a tough time in Joseph's life, right? This is a man who was given dreams by God that he would be a great leader. And now he's left abandoned in a foreign land, the victim of an injustice, an abuse of power, and with no obvious way out. And just when it seemed like something might happen for him that would change his circumstance, it fell through. It didn't work out for him. He remains in prison. And we all face hard times in our lives, don't we? Each of us face seasons of life that are hard and painful to live through, where life doesn't work out the way we thought it would, just like Joseph. And in those seasons, it can be hard to see a way out. So when life is like this, how do we endure? How can we remain rooted in our faith in these seasons of life? I want to look at three things this morning that will hopefully help us answer this question. And it's these three things. Firstly, that God uses us in the midst of our hardship. (coughs) Secondly, that God changes us in the midst of our hardship. And lastly, we have a truth that helps us to endure all kinds of hardship. So let's look at the first one. Now, we don't know any details about the cupbearer or the baker. We don't know whether they were guilty or whether, like Joseph, they were innocent innocent men. But they're in prison. And and verses 6 and 7 tells us that Joseph sees that the two men were downcast. And he asks them why. And this might not seem all that important. um, But actually, it reveals something about Joseph's heart and his attitude to people, because why should Joseph care about them? Why should he care about the, the guy who is the cupbearer for the leader of a nation that he's been sold into slavery into and where he's been treated unjustly? Surely Joseph could just ignore that and think about himself, go into self-preservation mode to be more concerned with his own predicament. I mean, he spent years in prison. He's wearing the scars of what happened to him with his brothers and how they... Um, uh, treated him and he's had some dark times presumably he doesn't tell us in the book but you don't have to be told to guess that he would have had some dark times he would have had some times where he wondered whether God was really with him 
He's remembered the dreams. I'm sure he remembers those really powerful dreams he had. And um, he's probably asking, was it just a fantasy? Maybe the dreams didn't really come from God after all. Or maybe they did come from God, but now God's forgotten him. God's moved on to better things. It would have been really easy for Joseph to become embittered, wouldn't it? And we might have seen this in people's lives, that people we know who have gone through really hard seasons, really hard times of suffering, and, and they become embittered. They become hard-hearted. Perhaps it's even happened to you. I know from my own experience, there's been times in my own life during times of hardship where I have felt in myself that the best thing I can do is to concentrate on me and not the well-being of others. But that's not what God wants from us because God wants to use us all the time, even in the times when we're in hardship, just like he uses Joseph here. He wants to use us to bless us, to serve people, to bless people and to serve them. And this makes sense because even in the roughest times in our lives, we're going to be in contact with people. We're going to have responsibilities in our places of work, in our families, in our church. We're going to have friends and family and neighbours. We're going to be people that don't know who Jesus is that we come into contact with every single day. And that's not to say that we should just have a stiff upper lip and pretend that everything's okay and we're fine when it's not fine. But it doesn't mean that we should become hard-hearted and insular. And actually, God wants to keep us soft-hearted, even in the times when we are having really difficult times in our lives. The way Joseph notices, and the the very fact that he notices and then acts on what he sees, tells us something about his heart for people and gives us an example for how our hearts should be oriented to people as well. And this shows, and obviously this reminds us of Jesus, right? Another innocent man punished for something that he didn't do, but his main concern was for the good of other people. But also, when we're in the midst of hardship, God God doesn't just leave us there. He wants to change us, and he does change us in the midst of hardship. Have you ever wondered what Paul, the Apostle Paul, would pray for us as a church, a CCM, in the Heatons? Or maybe even what the Apostle Paul would pray for you individually? Maybe it's just me. I kind of, it's a good thought experiment, isn't it? What would Paul pray for me? Would it be the same things that we would pray for when we gather together to pray for our church? Is it the same things that we would pray for in our own quiet times? Tim Keller um, has written this amazing book on prayer, and he makes this point, um, which I'm going to read out because he says it better than I can. It's remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. It is certain that they lived in the midst of many dangers and hardships. They faced persecution, death from disease, oppression by powerful forces, and separation from loved ones. Their existence was far less secure than ours is today. Yet in these prayers, not one, you see not one petition for a better emperor, for protection from marauding armies, or even bread for the next meal. Paul does not pray for the goods that we would usually have near the top of our lists of requests. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever spotted that before? I don't think I had. Kind of, was one of those things I read, and it was like, yes, I can see that now. But, so what does Paul pray for instead? If he's not praying for a change in their circumstances, what is he praying for for those people? He prays that they would know God better. He prays for the Ephesians 
in, in Ephesians chapter 1. He prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened in order that they would know the hope to which that he has called them, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. Now, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's referring to kind of our foundational core, the very innermost being of us. It's kind of more like the gut, you know, what's in here. And, and Keller kind of um, goes on to say and kind of defines this kind of idea of what the Bible means by the heart by saying it's a reposit- the repository of one's core commitments, deepest loves and most foundational hopes that control our feeling, thinking and behaviour. To have the eyes of our hearts enlightened with a particular truth means to have it penetrate and grip us so deeply that it changes the whole person. In other words, that we might know God is holy, but when our heart's eyes are enlightened to that truth, then we not only understand it cognitively, but emotionally we find God's holiness wondrous and beautiful. And what he means is that there is a difference between knowing something and knowing something. Knowing something in here and knowing something in here. For example, I know my shirt is a checkered shirt. Right? I, was, I actually wrote in my notes, describe what colour shirt I'm wearing, but I've realised that it's not very easy to describe the colours on this, so I'll stay with checkered. Now, knowing this doesn't change me in any way. Right? It, might, it might affect what trousers I wear, but I don't change with this knowledge. It doesn't penetrate and grip me so deeply that it changes my whole person. It's no use to me to know this when a crisis comes along. But I also know that I need food to survive. And this affects how I live because, you know, I plan my day around mealtimes and I make sure my, my fridge is fully stocked. And I know when I need food because my body tells me something's wrong. The hunger pains are real. The desire for a biscuit is a real thing. Now, many of us, many of us know God in the way that I know what pattern my shirt is, but how many of us know God in that way that it penetrates us and grips us so deeply that it changes our foundational core of who we are? Do we know God in such a way that this knowledge provides a secure platform that we can stand on and roots us in it so deeply into, our, into a firm hope for the future that not even the worst pain and hardship can take it away from us? Not even the worst things that life can throw at us could shake that knowledge deep in here. We, um, we believe in a God of miracles, and we often talk about breakthrough, and we often ask for breakthrough for circumstances in our lives and circumstances in the lives of people around us. And, and that's great. I want a disclaimer now. We should do that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. The Bible's full of examples of that. Read the Psalms and you'll see loads of examples of that. But what do we do when breakthrough doesn't come? What about the things that can't be undone? How do we respond then? I can't change many things that have happened in my life that cause me pain. I could be healed from that pain. I can't change that our oldest boy, Thomas, is, is autistic and he has multiple special needs. 
I believe that God heals sickness wholeheartedly. I've seen it happen. But I'm also realistic in knowing that not all healings happen. Some things don't change in the way that we want them to. I would dearly love him to be changed in that, you know. But it's likely he won't be. It's likely he'll have profound needs that we'll need support for the rest of his life and it will impact us. Now, you might accuse me of lacking faith, and I'm sure some people would say, Andy, you lack faith. My response would be, I believe God can do anything. But building all my hope on the promise of a miracle that might not come isn't a good idea. Because if all I look for is breakthrough, I'm going to be crushed when it doesn't come. And I'm going to doubt God's goodness to me, and I'll become hard-hearted. So if there are times and seasons where the circumstances don't change, then what can? Us. We change. If we have more of God. If the eyes of our hearts are enlightened to see him so much that it grips us and changes us, we change. In order to endure when hardship comes, we need a balance in our faith of believing God for breakthrough, for the miraculous, with a deeper knowledge and experience of his love so that we're not crushed when breakthrough doesn't come. So more than we need a change in our circumstances, we need to, change, we need to be changed ourselves deeply in our hearts. We need God to change us. So that we believe that, yes, God is miraculous, but also that he loves us with an absolute, complete, total, unwavering love that, and a commitment to our good that far surpasses our own, even if things don't work out the way we expected. And if we, if we grab this, if we live like this, if this, if this truth is in us and changing us, and we know this, then we can avoid becoming people who doubt God's goodness when things don't work out the way we want them to or when, when we suffer. Because we don't judge our value of how good God is based on how good our lives are. So how is, how is this possible? This is, this is hard stuff, right? This isn't easy stuff. Well, it's ultimately possible through Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have a truth that helps us to endure all hardship. And this is where we have an advantage over Joseph, right? Jesus comes many, many years, thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of years after Joseph lived. And he didn't have the things that we have. We have this advantage of living in the the post days of the cross. Because in Jesus, we see the fullness of God's love and commitment to us and his unending love for us. And it is ultimately demonstrated by his sacrifice for us on the cross. And like, G- like, like Joseph, Jesus was, was falsely accused and punished for crimes he didn't commit. And that means that Hebrews 4.15 can say this about Jesus, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
Now, there's an amazing book which I recommend everyone reads called um, Gentle and Lonely by Dane Ortland. Um, and he, he writes a chapter about this one verse. And he, he, says, he says this, sympathize here, the word sympathize is used in this verse, it's not cool and detached pity. It's a depth of felt solidarity, such as is echoed in our own lives, most closely only as parents to children. Indeed, it's even deeper than that. In our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own, in the sense that his heart is feelingly drawn into our distress. Isn't that a great phrase? He's feelingly drawn into our distress. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. This is the one who walks alongside us in our hardship. This is Jesus. The one who loved us so much that he would endure the cross for us so that he could walk alongside us. Ortland goes on to say that Jesus knows what it is to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured and killed. He knows what it is to be lonely. His friends abandoned him when he needed him the most. Had he lived today, every last Twitter follower and Facebook friend would have unfriended him when he turned 33. Yet he, who will never unfriend us. We have a God who comes right alongside us in the midst of our worst times, who is feelingly drawn into our distress. Just as we finish, I want to just kind of suggest a couple of things that, that can help us to, to, remain, to be rooted and to remain rooted into this truth, this truth that can help us to endure all hardship. Uh, the first one is community. I believe community is vital absolutely vital to our, our health and our faith and our well-being. We can't do this alone. We won't endure suffering alone. And we can help each other in community. You know, our, our stories, our experiences, we can bring encouragement to each other. We can, because when we hear how God works in other people's lives, it gives, it gives me expectation he can work in mine as well. And it means that we can also support each other when when things aren't going so well. We can pray for each other. We can practically support each other. We can be there for each other. That's what community looks like. It isn't just a thing we do on Sunday, or even a thing that we do on Sunday and Wednesday nights, or whatever night your community group meets on. It's a 24-7 experience where we are together as family through everything, through good and bad. And when we're rooted into community, that helps to root us into our faith much more, because we're supposed to do this in a communal way. Secondly, spiritual disciplines. Now, I know people kind of recoil a little bit at that phrase. Like, no one likes the word discipline, do they? Um, but all it means is, is, is this. I'll give you an analogy. So I, I'm, I'm a runner, kind of a casual runner. Um, I know there's a discipline to me getting out on a day like this when it's raining and running. I'd rather not. I'd rather sit in a, a warm house. I know some people here run marathons. And I, I've heard about the training plans that you guys have had to put in to, in order to run a marathon. Because you can't just rock up on the day of a marathon and run 26 miles without training and discipline beforehand. And in the same way, 
reading our Bibles, praying, having quiet times, doing community, worshipping God. These are all just things that are a form of discipline that help to train us in our faith, in, in knowing God more. And this helps us in times of hardship. Jen Wilkin, who's a, who's a Bible teacher, um, tweeted this recently, and I think it's just a brilliant, a brilliant statement. She says, spiritual disciplines nurture steadfastness. What we reap, sorry, what we repeat in times of ease, we will recall in times of hardship. And, and lastly, experiencing God. We need to experience this. That's what takes it from being something that's in here into, into here. And I want to finish with a story of, of um, how this has happened to me, because that's probably appropriate, right? Um, I, um, I'm going to share a story of how this happened to me, how, how I first knew God loved me. I, um, I, I, I was an unplanned pregnancy, and many of you will know that. I'm, it's not like a, a secret, but um, I, it was a teenage pregnancy. Um, and there's something about knowing that um, that affects your psyche, right? You weren't planned, you weren't wanted. That's kind of uh, doubled down by the fact that my biological dad left when I was two. We went to Canada and I haven't seen him since. So you grow up with a, a big fear of rejection, right? And um, I, I wasn't a Christian growing up. Um, and so that's a big banner, that's a big motif over my life when I was young. And I became a Christian when I was about 17 years old. I, I went on an Alpha course. And, um, we're doing an Alpha course right now. You should go, it's great. Um, and I became a follower of Jesus there. About a year later, I went to this weekend away. Um, it was in a, in a different church, not, not CCM. Um, and there was an a evening session of worship and, and, and prayer. And the lady who was one of the leaders at the church knew me, but didn't know anything about my life. Right? So she, completely oblivious to my background and um, I'm just kind of sat there kind of a little bit far away it was Friday night I was tired probably looking forward to going to bed and she wanders over and she says to me um, I want to give you a hug because I don't think you've had many hugs in your life so she gives me a hug and that that got me because it's true I should have said that my stepdad um we, we weren't close. That was another kind of thing that added to the, the whole rejection thing. We, we were not close at all. Never called him dad. He never deserved the term dad. Then, then she says to me these words. She says, you were not a mistake. That's something that completely broke me. I have to be careful not to cry now because it still happens all these years later, 20 years later. That's the, the first moment I really knew God was real. Not only that God was real, that God loved me. And then she goes on because it's not finished. 
she um, starts to read from Psalm 139. And I'm already, you know, leaving snot trails all over her shoulder and <laughs> a blubbering wreck. And then she reads this to me. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I have had many times of hardship since that night. Many. I'll never forget this. Something changed in me. God did something in me. God took the knowledge of who he was and made it real. I know God. It doesn't mean that things are easy. It doesn't mean that I breeze through life. Far from it. But I know I've got a a secure foundation in him that even the worst hardships can't shake. More than anything else, we, we need to know God. Wherever we're at this morning, whether we're in a, a, a good place, a bad place, a mediocre place, what we all need is more of God. And I'm going to just pray that. I pray that God meets all of you and does something to increase our knowledge, our knowing deep inside us of who he is, that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened to see who he is and how much he loves us.